only God can judge me. It's a phrase you've probably heard uttered many times in conversations with friends or family or coworkers. And it's a casual way of saying to you, who are you to judge my life or my decisions? You're not so perfect yourself. And the underlying assumption is that God is going to go lighter on sin than you. But this reveals a profound ignorance about who God is. God is a God of righteousness. He doesn't abide with sin, even if it's sin within his own people, especially if it's sin within his own people. So is God the ultimate judge of our lives? Yes, he is. There's some truth to that statement. Only God can judge me. But do we really know what we're saying? Because the proper response to the reality that God will judge every one of us is not flippancy. It's not sarcasm, but fear. And Zephaniah is a prophet warning all of us, especially those who are in the church, to fear the Lord and live. Because if you ignore him, you will die. This is Understanding Zephaniah. The prophet Zephaniah likely ministered shortly before Habakkuk and a little after Nahum. And this is important because Nahum speaks of Assyria's downfall and Habakkuk speaks of Babylon's rise. So Assyria is this national superpower that's bothering Israel. Uh, They actually took over northern Israel and they subjugated southern Israel, which is called Judah. And Judah is where Zephaniah is ministering. What's interesting about Zephaniah is that unlike Habakkuk and Nahum, Zephaniah doesn't really focus on God's judgment against Judah's enemies. It's not really focusing on how God will judge the nations. Rather, Zephaniah focuses on God's judgment against his own people. It is Jerusalem, not the pagan nations around them, that have incurred God's wrath. And it is Jerusalem that will face destruction. This is Zephaniah chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Be silent before the Lord God. For the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. 
Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traders are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, The Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered, and their houses laid waste. Though they build buildings, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end, he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Zephaniah begins his prophecy with a warning. God is going to judge Judah for her idolatry, syncretism, and apathy. Now the opening verses, verses 1 through 6, Utilize decreation language. Now, if you've been following this series for a little bit, you'll know that this pops up a lot in prophetic literature. And it's language that signifies God's complete destruction of Jerusalem. And you can see some Genesis 1 imagery here. God's going to sweep away man and beast, which is the sixth day of creation. And he's going to sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, which is day five of creation. So in Genesis 1, God is forming a world And in Zephaniah 1, God is disintegrating a world. So this is a vision of the complete destruction of Jerusalem and its political order and its religious order. Now, the phrase, I will, appears six times in these opening verses. And that's a clear indication that this judgment, this uh, oncoming uh, destruction of Jerusalem is inevitable. And even the righteous ones will be caught up in this historical destruction. Uh, And so it's important to think about this, you know, just because you're righteous, maybe you are a true worshiper of God, but if your city is under judgment, you're going to feel the wrath of that. And so even the righteous are caught up in this judgment. Now, what motivates God's anger? Well, first, like we said in the beginning, idolatry. Judah has been under the heel of the Assyrian Empire for many generations, And because of that, they have fallen into idolatry and and begun to worship Assyria's gods. So the pagan influence of Assyria has sunken in so deeply into the religious order of Judah's priests that their, their priests are actually bowing down before pagan deities. Second, God's anger is against Judah's syncretism. Now, syncretism is related, but still distinct from idolatry. Idolatry is when you exchange worship of God with false gods, with idols. But syncretism is mixing the worship of the true God with the worship of idols. So it's when we take Christian ideas and fuse them with Buddhism or New Ageism. In Judah's case, they're they're fusing and blending uh, Judaism, the the worship of the true God, with uh, the Ammonite god Milcom. So you can hear this phrase where he talks about, you know, you swear to the Lord, but you also swear to Milcom. 
You're, you're speaking out of both sides of your mouth. You're, you're showing faithfulness to the Lord while also showing faithfulness to another God, and, and that doesn't work together, right? It's sort of like dropping black ink into a glass of water. It, it, it turns the whole thing black. The whole thing becomes uh, defiled. And that's what happens with syncretism. Whenever you add a little bit of some other religion into Christianity, it defiles the whole thing and, and you lose it. It's no longer a clear glass of water. So God demands true and pure worship. Now, finally, God's anger is against Judah's apathy. What's amazing is that despite all of God's saving acts in Judah's history, in Israel's history, from the Exodus to uh, parting uh, uh, the, the Jordan for, for Joshua to enter in, to delivering them from uh, the Philistines and, and from the Assyrians and all these different things. Despite all the ways that God has delivered his people, Israel refuses to trust him. They repeatedly forget the Lord and turn to other gods and nations for help. And this leads to God's declaration of the day of the Lord. Now, this often repeated phrase in the prophets refers both to God's many days of judgment within history and his final mega judgment at the end of history. So that's my way of kind of distinguishing the two. It can refer either to the many kind of smaller historical judgments, but these all foreshadow a future final cosmic judgment. Um, and the day of the Lord is often used in the other prophets to describe God's victory over Israel's enemies. So the day of the Lord is something that they look forward to, that if you're one of God's people, you're waiting for the day of the Lord because that's when God destroys the people who are attacking Israel. But there's a twist when it comes to Zephaniah. The day of the Lord in Zephaniah is a judgment against Israel. It's a judgment against his own people. In fact, God actually describes himself as uh, a dinner host. He's preparing a party and he's got a sacrifice ready for his guests to enjoy. And the sacrifice is Jerusalem. The sacrifice is his own people. They're going to be judged like the pagans are judged because they have become like the pagans. It's almost like God is saying, you, you've become indistinguishable from the nations around you. You've so defiled yourself that you're no longer my holy people. And I'm going to treat you like the nations because you want to be like them so much, you're going to face the consequences that they're one day going to face. Now, what we see is that this, is, this, this warning falls on deaf ears. Uh, Judah's princes, the, the sons of the kings and the elite, they wear pagan worship clothing and they basically live as practical atheists. They hear the word of the prophet and they basically say, and it's a quote in verse 12, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. So it's like God's not going to bless us. We don't really need his blessing. And that's a superstition or it doesn't really work. And God's not going to judge us. We're going to be fine. We can sin with impunity and God's going to be lenient. He's going to be fine. It's this idea that God exists, but he doesn't really interfere with the affairs of our world. They're, they're kind of complacent. They're apathetic. They don't really care at all. Now, God responds, because he's provoked by this, by telling them, I'm going to plunder the very things that give you this smug sense of security and self-confidence. All right, you sit there, you're elite, you're rich, you're powerful, and you think this gives you invincibility. You think that this protects you from the judgment of God, that you can just evade my justice. And God says, well, I'm actually going to destroy the very things that give you pride. Your vineyards and your houses, the things that you try to build, I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to bring curses upon them. And Jerusalem's judgment is just the tip of the iceberg. So, 
God moves from this sort of specific idea of Jerusalem and expands out to the world, right? God's mini day of judgment against Jerusalem points forward to his mega day of judgment, the mega day of the Lord, which he also refers to as his day of wrath. And that day is against the entire world, right? This day of wrath, this day of the Lord is going to hold the entire world to account, all of mankind. They're going to be held to account for their sins against God. So even the wealthiest of men, he makes a mention of, you know, no one's going to be able to hide behind their gold and silver, right? Your wealth, your prestige, you're not going to be able to escape the fire of his jealousy. Because in verse 18, it says that all the earth shall be consumed, that all of the earth will feel the judgment of God, that the nations of the world will be held to account. And God's judgment is an uncomfortable but necessary reality. We want God to be just. We don't want God to just let people off the hook. But we have to remember that judgment begins with the household of God. And that's a terrifying thought. 1 Peter 4.17 says this, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Now, the idea here is if God is going to discipline his own people, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? Right? If God is is not going to let his own people, whom he loves and redeems, let their sins slide, and he's going to discipline them, not not destroy them, not not condemn them to eternal uh, destruction, but rather temporary uh, moments of chastening, moments of discipline, how much more will we give to his enemies? How much greater will his judgment be against those who rebel against him fully? And it's kind of difficult to think about that. You, You think about, oh, there's no condemnation in Christ if you're a Christian. Well, that's true, but but God still judges his corporate people. He still will hold them account to their sins, but in a different way than the nations. His judgment for his own people is a disciplinary one. It's a purifying one, and it's, it's, it's one that removes sort of the false believers so that the true ones can remain, and that's why we see this word remnant all over the Old Testament. That's the faithful who survive the judgment of God and are the core of God's true people. So we have to remember that even as Christians, we have to be watchful over ourselves. We have to watch our lives. We must not fall into sin nor give ground to Satan. And God will hold us accountable because he loves us. And to the person who says only God can judge me, you don't really know what you're asking for. And one of the great promises of the gospel is that God's judgment has been fulfilled. He's still going to discipline you, but the final judgment against you is innocent, is righteous. And that is why we can know that even if God disciplines us temporarily, it's never for a lifetime. His anger is only but for a moment, but his love, his faithfulness lasts forever. Mm -hmm.